the free for all roundtable round one Jerry Agar in for John Moore for this week. He's back on Monday. Joining me on round one, airline industry expert John Tory Jr., Vaz Bednar, executive director of the MPP and Digital Society at McMaster University, and Toronto City Councillor Shelley Carroll. Welcome all, Shelley. I'm going to start with you. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Sure. A couple of things here uh, from City Hall. Let's take issue one. The council voted not to keep the warming centers open 24/7. What was your vote and what's your take on all of that? Uh, I voted uh, to stick with the plan that we already have, which is to continue to run the warming centers that we have that open at seven o'clock at night that can open without an extreme weather alert and and actually can be expanded along those lines if we find another couple of sites. Opening them 24 hours would reduce the number of sites and isn't really possible right now because we don't have the staff. So what we've ordered staff to do is tell us by April, how could we do it? And possibly that will be the model next fall. We didn't do nothing. We're doing what we can afford to do right now and what we have the staff to do. All right. So uh, I'm, I'm a little... I'm a little exercised about it because some of my very own colleagues are characterizing this as doing nothing, even as we last night sheltered over 9,000 people in this city. Well, how how would it reduce the number of facilities? It's because of staff, not the, the number yeah. of facilities? Terry, if you can if you can picture it in 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 a very small number of years, we have doubled the number of, of homeless that are being served in the city of Toronto, and it is the hardest job in the world to do those those jobs and shelters. And so, pretty much, we're at the point now where almost anyone who wants to dedicate themselves to that kind of work is already doing it. And so, each warming center you're open takes uh, a minimum of five more bodies and and good site conditions bathroom, a shower, and and uh, uh, an appropriate place to site one. And so all of those conditions are very hard to meet. We got Cecil Street open because we had a, a very cooperative counselor and counselor Diane Sachs and, and a good facility. And we're looking for a couple more. Each of them would take five staff members. But if we took the four we have now and said they have to be 24 hours, you would then need two more shifts of five each. Each of them would need 10 more staff. And, and that we don't have right this very minute. Okay, and the other thing that happened was, um, and I'm taking this from a CP24 report, that uh, council called on the provincial government to require all large municipalities in Ontario to provide shelter space proportionate to their population and for the federal government to provide funding for refugees seeking emergency shelter in Ontario. But you know, as a city councillor, Shelley, that the province and the feds can just say, oh, that's nice, that's cute, we don't listen to you. Well, I don't know if the province can uh, can really continue to say that. Their own Auditor General, Bonnie Lysak, uh, in her most recent report, recommendation number one of her report is, Premier, you have no homelessness strategy, and it's reaching crisis proportions across the province. You need a homelessness strategy. And then the, the rest of the recommendations went on to say, if you're going to flow that money, here's how to make it accountable and make sure the, the money gets spent uh, correctly and, and served 
serves the people. Those are her recommendations, their own auditor general. So what we did is just mirror her recommendations and say, we think you should be doing that. We also sent a letter to every mayor in the GTHA and, and Cam Guthrie out in Guelph to say, did you know that the auditor general has has made that recommendation to the premier? Uh, my good friend, Mayor Bonnie Crombie, had not noticed that and was, was uh, 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 very interested to see that and is going to follow up. Vaz, how does this strike you, all of this? You know, it's sort of making me think about the the timing of the vacant home tax stuff as well, because Shelly, I, I know you know all the details and all the nuances, but how it gets sort of distilled that word is, I think people feel an impatience or a, oh my goodness, we need to do more now, you know, while it's cold. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that we need to do more you know, with partnerships over time and understand, you know, the, the nuances of staffing and kind of what it takes to, to open things up. But I also understand people's impatience and sense that, you know, it may not be that cold I, today, uh, I, but yeah, this sorry. is the season, right? I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand, Vaz, how this ties into the vacant home tax. Oh, okay. You know, for me, it's kind of like this cluster of policy change, but in a very kind of belated way. So, in a in a time where uh, interest rates have changed the housing market significantly, et cetera, et cetera, we have this like clump of policies that were actually overdue and should have been implemented sooner as an effort to cool the housing market. And I sort of see this parallel where there's all these other things that we want to do, but we want to do them later um, yeah. when it's a different season and it's outside of like the the urgent immediate need. Sorry, that was my strange morning parallel for you. Okay, because yeah. the, the vacant home tax is to open up homes and apartments, etc. for rent and people, John Tory Jr., people who are out on the street and don't have a warm place to be can't afford those houses and apartments anyway. No, no I know that. No, they can't. But the whole idea is to be increasing the supply on the market and, frankly, to prevent people from holding supply. So it's, it's a, it, this particular tax is meant to discourage behavior. It's not actually meant to be a revenue generator. So like, yeah. what they're trying to say is don't hold empty homes, whether you would make them for rent or for occupancy by yourselves and your family. The whole point is people are just like when you walk by other things you don't like in the city and you look at it and you go, how the hell is that allowed to happen? We're sitting here going, we have a crisis of people who can't find housing and you're walking by empty houses going, how is that allowed to happen? So this tax is meant to discourage behavior and encourage people to have housing occupied. And, yeah. you know, with respect to, you know, with respect to just to the, the overall kind of utility argument of, and people shouldn't be hoarding housing. That That's what that is. Okay. Those are two different populations of people though, that we're talking about really, I think. Trees are not the root of Metrolinx's problems at Queen and University is a headline on a column by Adam Vaughn that they're running in the star. And Vaz, um, if all we're going to do is sit around and argue about which corner the uh, transit stop should be placed on, we're going to be like we always are in Toronto. We do a really good job of arguing about transit. Not so good at building it. Yeah, but is is this another situation? Again, and, and the parallel I was trying to draw was not about the same population, but about the delay in the policy interventions that we want to need. When we see that people already are starting to turn away from our public transit system, is this is this expenditure now going to get people hyped about the Ontario line, or are we not going to see people using it? So sure, maybe going back to the drawing board, it's an important intersection, but what makes Queen in university that much more significant than any other place. 
Okay, uh, in the downtown that's going to be disrupted. I have a question about that, though, Shelley. Maybe as a counselor, you know the answer to this. I've used that Osgood uh, stop a lot because if I'm if I take sure. public transit to come to the radio station, that's the one you get off on. And and there's already a station there. Like, why aren't we tapping into that? What do I misunderstand? Well, the Ontario Line has to cross it. And and if if you think of, I don't know if you've been to Young and Eglinton. Uh, recently when you're building into a station that already exists it is an enormously complex task a lot of people are saying why do they need to cut trees down now uh, that ontario line tunnel is nowhere near here but in fact part of the reason the eglinton crosstown is so delayed is they waited till they were finished all those tracks to then start the most complex part of the project which was at young and eglinton and mm-hmm. now here we are three years into delay so perhaps they learned a lesson and they've realize now that those very complex spots, Young and Queen and University and Queen, if they're going to have a functioning line, they really have to get started on those complex multi-stations that will now have two lines running through them, just like we have at Young Bloor. All right, John Tory Jr., just build it. Yeah, I agree. And, and by the way, to add to what Shelley was saying, too, we have to remember because there's already a subway line there, there's like there's water, there's sewer, there's telephone, there's Internet. And all that stuff also has to be figured out in the context of two lines, not one. And also, yeah, Jerry, we've talked about this before, that like everything that we enjoy in Toronto, where where it stands now, once stood trees. And it's too bad that beautiful trees have to come down. But it's time to build it. Those trees should just come down. And it's it's not a huge number. Then we can plant five times as many somewhere else and get on with the transit that will serve everybody uh, in Toronto and just put more trees somewhere else. I really don't understand the the, the amount of hand-wringing over this. Now, uh, <laughs> this story, accused OPP shooter, this uh, police officer who was shot, he thought he was uh, just attending a, an accident. A car had gone into the ditch, and the next thing we know, he's shot dead. And the accused in this issue was out on bail due to Indigenous identity. Is it wise, Shelley, to have, we have this glad you provision, to be separating people out by race in law? I mean, to me, that sounds like institutional racism. Well, you know, it's it's heartbreaking because while that, that, that statute's probably still going to be there, even though that statute's there, the judge still has a duty to look at, is this a dangerous criminal? Uh, that, that should override everything. And when a tragedy like this happens, it's too late, of course, but you can bet that there'll be a ripple through the court to, to make the judges will now really be conscious of while we're mindful of that statute. The first question is, is this a dangerous criminal before you put them out on bail? Because that does still override the statute in any court. John? The way the, the goal of the statute is, of course, to reduce the disproportionate number of First Nations and Indigenous people in our system, in our prison and jail systems. And the way, in my opinion, that you do that is by addressing the root socioeconomic causes of, of the lives lived of what is causing this to happen, whether it's undue enforcement or situations that are causing people to choose crime. I think that the bail decisions should be made solely on the basis of risk to society, likelihood to reoffend, and, you know, the, the extent of pretrial custody is going to happen and maybe services that can be offered during pretrial custody. So I get why it happened, but I think that this is just, it's patchwork. We're not actually solving the problem. We need to go back further into the chain of events, so to speak, as it presents itself and solve the problems in the communities. Okay, but Vaz, disproportionately, the number of people in prison are male. Should we be mitigating against that? 
Well, maybe what we need to also think about is when people are on bail, like one of the dimensions that the the judge brought up was that the the surety was not uh, may not have been as best prepared to support this person and actually it's intriguing my read of it is that uh he's proposing actually that uh his his mother could so sorry the judge's mother could could be somebody who's supervising and sort of supporting this individual now while they're while they're on bail uh in terms of the the gendered aspect no i i i don't think so but are we, when we're, you know, allowing this to happen, are we making sure that people have access to the supports and guidance that that they need? And that's part of why the judge has said this this decision to have the person on bail is, you know, quote unquote, iffy. All right. So on the panel, we have just had Vaz Bednar, John Tory Jr. and Shelley Carroll. Thanks to all of you. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845, weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.